0: What truly really matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
1: 44% of jobs will be automated.
0: It reinforces
1: cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning, and welcome to episode 24 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell, and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Dr. Lorraine Hammond. Lorraine is an academic from the School of Education at the Edith Cowan University. Her research interests include high-impact instruction, literacy-based learning difficulties and instructional coaching. Lorraine is currently conducting research on the impact of instructional coaching to support schools to take up explicit instruction, as well as working on the Kimberley Schools Project and research on literacy-based learning difficulties. Lorraine is the President of Learning Difficulties Australia and the Chair, Deputy Chair and Board Member of three high-performing primary schools and one Perth High School. In 2016, Lorraine was recognised by the Australian Government with a National University Teaching Excellence Award, and in 2017 by the Australian Council of Educational Leadership with an Educational Leadership Award for her work in schools. Lorraine considers herself a practical academic and enjoys nothing more than working directly with teachers and students in classrooms. In this episode of the ERRR, we're speaking to Lorraine about her paper entitled Teachers Taking Up Explicit Instruction, The Impacts of a Professional Development and Directive Instructional Coaching Model. I was excited to interview Lorraine on this paper for two main reasons. The first is that it explores coaching, and not just any coaching, but coaching that clearly positions the coach as an expert other. This is in contrast to how coaching is often promoted, with the coach being more of a support, asking questions of the teachers and prompting them to find the answers from within. In addition, Lorraine's paper is about supporting the establishment of explicit instruction within schools to target literacy development, and she certainly has some inspiring stories of turning around literacy outcomes. Now, before we jump into the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insights, interesting and actionable articles that have come across from Twitter, blogs and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30pm on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. Last week's email included articles on visual representations of tricky math concepts, the psychology of when, secrets of timing in schools, a snippet on the difference between wait time 1 and wait time 2, an idea I hadn't heard of before, and much, much more. If you'd like to sign up to this weekly email, just jump onto ollielevel.com and you'll see the sign-up form in no time. Also, happy two-year anniversary. This episode, being the 24th, marks two years of the Education Research Reading Room podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride so far, and here's to another year of learning about learning together. Also, if you've been enjoying the ERRR so far, please consider supporting the podcast by making a monthly donation on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash and thanks so much to the people who have signed up since last episode. We're now almost halfway to making the ERRR cost-neutral. So, without further ado let's jump straight into episode 24 of the education research reading room with dr lorraine hammond dr lorraine hammond welcome to the education research reading room thank you ali so the first question which i know you've you've heard yourself because you've been listening to the podcast is lorraine if you're at a party and someone says hi lorraine what is it that you do what is your answer
0: oh well Ollie, I don't get to parties very often. And ironically, you've been spending a lot of time with me recently. I've I've had you out on walks. I've had you in the car with me driving along. <laughs> and I was actually listening to you on the way to the last party that I attended, which indeed was for an 11-year-old. And it was a paintballing party. So as I sat outside with all the other mothers waiting dutifully for my son to come back, I was chatting to a mum who whose son doesn't go to my son's school so she doesn't know me and she was chatting to me about her son and how he's going and how she had all these concerns about his literacy. And and I was sort of just talking away. And in the end, she said to me, she said, oh, she said, you seem to know a bit about this. What do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm the President of Learning Difficulties Australia. So that's one thing that I do. The next thing that, that I do, I guess, is also a very interesting anecdote, if we can take the time. We were on holidays as a family and we'd gone down south to our favourite holiday place. And We got out of the car, it's a long drive, and my son just took off because he saw some other children, and he's an only child, so he was excited to see somebody else he might be able to play with. And as I was walking down to find out what he was doing, and I was noticing that he was eating all the food off their barbecue, he he sort of adopted a family. I I grabbed a bottle of wine and walked down with a glass, and I thought, "I'll, I'll try and ingratiate myself to these poor parents and I was chatting to the mum and she was saying to me, isn't it great at school holidays? I'm going to be a teacher soon. And I said, well, that's fantastic. You know, what kind of a teacher are you going to be? She said, well, I'm going to be an early childhood teacher. And I said, well, that's great. She said, and I want to work in the Kimberley. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. I said, well, how's your course going? And she said, well, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, you know, it's been going well, but you know, Lorraine, it's the last unit that I'm doing and I don't know how to teach reading. And I was like, oh, okay. And she said, and I'm I'm not really sure what a diagraph is either. And this was just out of the blue. I I tweeted it. I was just so amazed. And I said, I work at a university and I train teachers. And she said, oh, that's really interesting. And so we, we got to talking. And I talked to her particularly about the fact that I work in the Kimberley. And you know, as as much as I was then able to say to her, hey, you know, if you want to, you can come and do a course with my students on how to teach reading because that's something that I really privileged in my university courses. That, that I teach here at ECU, that just, just right now you're not ready for the Kimberley. I need brain surgeons of literacy in the Kimberley, not, you know, a lifeguard. So that's something else that I do. I, I work a lot with teachers. I work at a university. And finally, Ollie, I'm a teacher myself. So um, a week doesn't go by, if if I can let it, where I don't go into a classroom and I actually teach. I teach kids from the age of four up to the age of about 17, and I go in and demonstrate explicit instruction lessons, which is really important for what we're talking about today. Because I don't think in all conscience I could sit down and watch you teach and comment on your teaching if I wasn't prepared to let somebody do the same to me.
1: Fantastic. Makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Lorraine. And could you give us a bit of a brief history of your career to date?
0: My career to date. Oh, well. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll start, I guess, at at the beginning in the sense that, that what you need to know, and I guess what we all need to know as educators, is I was a precocious reader, which means that I read from a very young age, and I then went through primary school and high school being really, really good at reading and anything to do with writing, and so I didn't know whether I was going to become a journalist or a teacher. And my mum was a teacher. She said, don't be a teacher. So I said, I'll be a teacher. So I I became a teacher. And at the time, I'd been reading My Brilliant Career by Miles Franklin. And so I had this idealistic notion that I was going to head bush and I was going to teach the young people that I met while I was teaching in the country, because if you wanted a job in WA at the time, you had to go to the country. I was going to teach them all about the classics. I'd read, you know, Moby Dick. I'd read it all. And I wanted to show them how wonderful literature was and so I, I wound up in a, in a place about, you know, three hours out of Perth, which compared to the distances I travel these days in the Kimberley is nothing. But anyway, three hours out of Perth and, and I should have twigged early. I had my first job as a secondary English teacher and there was another teacher in the school. And of course, she had made a good choice about the classes that she would like to teach. And she had left me the other classes. Yeah. And it took me a while to twig and I'd gone in there and I thought, well, you know, we'll we'll do Lucky Leonard Human Torpedo. Everybody loves Lucky Leonard Human Torpedo. So I had that book and then the kids didn't seem to like it much and it hadn't quite dawned on me that I had years eight to ten all in one class. I sort of struggled through with Lockie Leonard and I thought, all right, well, you don't like Lockie Leonard. We'll do uh, Captain Midnight. We'll do Captain Midnight. That'll be the thing. And, you know, Randolph Stowe, he was born in in Geraldton and we could go to Geraldton because it was nearby. and There's a merry-go-round and they weren't buying any of it. And it took me a long time, I think three-quarters of the way through term one, to actually realise, Ollie, that they couldn't read and write very well. And it was Mm. at that point where I had a horrible realisation that perhaps the undergraduate training that I had had left me bereft of the skills to deal with the situation. So it was very hard. And I had this Damascus moment because part of me was like, I really want to teach literature. I want to teach literature. And the other part of me was like, So these kids have somehow failed. After 10,000 hours of primary school, they have failed to learn how to read. This is terrible. So I felt that it was morally unconscionable, reprehensible, and somebody needed to do something about it. So I was very lucky. It was a district high school. I put up my hand and said, help. And a friend of mine who's a teacher said, yes, okay, I'll help you. And she said, you need to use this. And she got direct instruction out. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I can't possibly use that you know somebody at uni said to me don't 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 ever ever use that it's it's not an appropriate thing to do with kids it's you know it's it's the wrong thing to do you should never use something like that so she said you don't seem to be having too much success doing anything else and I sort of said well I just don't think I should use this and she said well you know and I I said all right I'll I'll go back to trying to love them to literacy for a while longer but eventually she kind of wore me down which was a good thing and she's a school principal now and she said look you know you're, you're gonna have to use this and I did and I can't say it was my best rendition but it actually was this, this Damascus moment where I realised, okay, I'm, I'm now going to work with these, these students because I do like them and I'm not entirely sure how to best help them. So I kind of limped through my first two years of teaching and then got back to the city and started enrolling in postgraduate study. And then I wanted to get the, to the bottom of why kids couldn't read. And so I, I did a, a master's and a PhD quite quickly, And I was very fortunate to Meet my PhD supervisor early on in the piece, and she was a big proponent of direct instruction. And so she very much shaped me in terms of my understanding of direct instruction. And so then I was exceedingly lucky, and I'd recommend it to anyone. I won a Churchill Fellowship that took me overseas for quite some time to investigate approaches to work with students with dyslexia, which I really enjoyed. And then I came back and I started working at the university, which is essentially where I've been from this point on. What a story. (laughs)
1: So, you've mentioned explicit instruction.
0: Mm.
1: What is this thing called explicit instruction?
0: Well, it all depends on, 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 on who you are. Everybody seems to have a different take on it. Look, if you could imagine a family tree, all right, on one side of the family tree, you have a guy called Siegfried Engelmann, and he's the father of direct instruction. So back in the 1960s, Siegfried Engelmann was an advertising executive and he was very interested in how he could sell product to people. So he was deployed on a mission to go and find out how long it would take for children to recognise something. And he, I think he'd always been a teacher at heart, but he realised that using an approach that he employed, the children learnt very quickly what the item was. And so he sort of turned his attention from advertising to education. And being a very moral man, he felt that... There were many children who were being disadvantaged by the instructional approach that was used at the time. And so he wrote a theory of instruction. At the same time, a guy called Dr. Barak Rosenschein, who was an academic, was going around to schools and saying, OK, Ollie, if you're the principal, who's the best teacher in your school? And working with that teacher and looking at the kind of things that they did And so he eventually came up with a a list of principles of effective instruction, and they're not that different to direct instruction, but direct instruction is the term that's used to describe anything that is a commercially based program with a capital D and a capital I. So something like Spelling Mastery, Reading Mastery, the first DI program I used was corrective reading when I was in the country. So that's a program that, that Siegfried Engelman or one of his colleagues actually wrote. Rack Rosenschein kind of moved with the times and you've got to admire him because he wanted to call it direct instruction but Siegfried Engel, Engelman already had that. So he called it lowercase d, lowercase i, which just confused everybody. So then it got called explicit instruction or explicit teaching. Ostensibly, it all means something very similar. It's a collection of strategies. There's three main things that you need to know about. It's a summary for recent findings on effective teaching. It's a systematic method of teaching with an emphasis on proceeding in small steps checking for our student understanding and achieving active and successful participation so that's a definition that Barack rosenshine uses the problem that i have is that there are other sort of more wafty definitions around that use um, terms like clear and concise and direct and modeling and practice and teachers go yeah yeah that's me that's me and then I go out and watch them teach and then I say, well, my explicit is not your explicit. So I prefer to use a capital E and a capital I. It's a proper noun. It's an actual model. It's an entity. It comes from a research base. I draw heavily on the work of Barack Rosenstein in my interpretation. However, in Western Australia, we're a very broad church. And so some people will be using the terms I do, we do, you do, which is more to do with direct instruction. I believe that a program like Spelling Mastery, which takes you about 15 minutes a day, you can get a better bang for your buck in terms of spelling instruction. So most of the high-performing schools that I work with, they use Spelling Mastery as well.
1: In some of the notes you sent through, I saw this picture of an apple and carved into the apple, it had the word tapple. I had not, I had not <laughs> seen or heard of this before. Can, is it, how is this related Chapel. to explicit instruction and what's it all about?
0: Oh, well, definitely comes through in the work of, I guess I talked about the origins of the model. And I think that if ever you're going to examine anything that comes along afterwards, you have to be able to go back and say, theoretically, where did this come from? So if we trace the work of Dr. Barack Rosenstein, you can find some people who are proponents of explicit instruction. They include Dr. Anita Archer and Charles Hughes. And you can download the first 20 pages of their book, Explicit Instruction, for free off the internet if you're interested. I use the work of Dr. Sylvia Yabara and John Hollingsworth, and they have a company called DataWorks, which is an American company, and they have an approach to instruction, which is based on elements of design. So there's a lesson design that they follow, but then they have engagement norms, and they also have delivery methods, and the TAPL is pretty central to what they do. So it's based on the idea of you have to teach first. So I'll, I'll give you a maths example because I know that's that's your background. I go into lots of maths classrooms in, in secondary schools and the teacher will say, okay, everybody, what's the prime number? And they'll look around hopefully and some kids will immediately look at the floor and other kids won't make eye contact and it's pretty obvious to me that not everybody knows what a prime number is to which often the teacher will wait a while, often look up at the ceiling in despair. And often if, if, if they're really grumpy, they'll say, we did this last week. Come on, guys, we did this last week. I can't believe that you have forgotten this. And Later on when I I talk to the teachers, I have to say, you know, you might well have done it last week and you might well have put together a really great lesson that took you quite some time to do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they learned it or more importantly that they remember it because so many more interesting things have happened since you taught that lesson (laughs) last week. They have, they have been on Fortnite. They've got new skins on Fortnite. Ask me anything about Fortnite. I'm an expert on that at the moment. So they've got new skins on Fortnite. They've been to see the new Venom movie. All these exciting things are happening in their lives. And so Prime Numbers has been pushed out of the way. So instead, I say to the teacher, why don't you just try this? Let's just assume that maybe their brain doesn't remember. And it's okay if it doesn't remember because we know, and this is the work of Borat, Rose and Shine and others, you know, on cognitive load theory that in order to take something from short to long-term memory, our brain needs multiple opportunities for practice. And so it probably is that while you taught prime numbers, kids have got a little bit of an idea about it, but they can't automatically recall it. So instead of, you know, asking them to do that, you would start off by saying, hey, everybody, listen, a prime number is any number divisible by one and itself. And everybody would then repeat that information and I would say, okay, everybody, repeat it after me and you'd all say it together. And then I'd say, Ollie, tell your partner. And then you'd turn and you'd tell your partner. And then I'd say, in a moment, I'm going to ask two of you to tell me what a prime number is. Now, of course, I've warned you, I'm going to ask. And the classroom now becomes an equal opportunity learning environment. Prior to that, it wasn't You knew, because I know that you would know, but nobody else knew. And so there were kids who were sitting there who had no idea what a prime number is. So that's TAPL, it's teach first. And it doesn't matter what you're teaching, so I'll give you another example that will be familiar to you. I was in a teacher's classroom recently and she put up an image and it was a fabulous image of a trebuchet, which is a catapult that's used during siege times in medieval times. And it was it was a terrible thing. They would, they would fling dead animals over the walls of the castles to ensure that everybody got diseased. And she put it up and she said, what's this? And, and no one seemed to know. And so we went into this very long process where she was waiting. So it doesn't matter whether you're teaching house or even I'll have in classrooms, teachers will say, okay, girls and boys, what do these sounds make? What do these two letters make? And, you know, the kids will look and, and it'll be A-Y, A is in tray, and then the teacher will say, nobody knows. Well, who can tell me a word that's got these? Well, <laughs> they don't know one without knowing the other, so it becomes quite confusing for children. So tackle is teach first. Don't assume that they know.
1: So that's explicit instruction. Today, we're talking about two things. We're talking about explicit instruction. And we're talking about supporting its use in schools through instructional coaching. So I think the next thing for us to kind of cover is what's your understanding of instructional coaching?
0: Well, instructional coaching, well, instructional coaching, as I understand it, and there's, again, there's, there's variations on this. We probably need to back up and just say, look, coaching falls along a continuum. And so if I look at what's typically out there for coaching at the moment, growth coaching is very, very popular. It's very popular in Western Australia and across Australia. And many of my colleagues have engaged in some growth coaching. Instructional coaching is different to growth coaching in the sense that growth coaching, as I understand it is far more egalitarian, it's far more equal, it's far more you saying to me, me saying to you, Ollie, what would you like to be better at? And you saying, well, I'd like to be better at this, that and the other. Instructional coaching is you... And me working together because your school has decided, or you have decided, but more likely your school has decided that they really want to improve the learning outcomes of students. And so it's often linked to a reform-based agenda. And that means that beforehand, everyone in the school has got together and said, okay, we need to do this. We need to improve the outcomes of our students. And so if explicit instruction, which is what I do, and I guess you could provide instructional coaching in any aspect of coaching, but what I do is explicit instruction if that's what you you want to do with your staff, my job is then to go in and to say, okay, Ollie, I'm here to help you get good at something. I actually know a lot about instructional coaching. You know, Ollie, I've had to face the reality that I'm never going to play tennis for Australia because I'm just not that good. I don't have the hand-eye coordination for it. But you know what? If there was any chance that I could, I'd want Roger Federer to be my coach, not you. I'm sure you're good at tennis, you know, but I really want Roger Federer. I don't want you. So the impetus or the premise behind instructional coaching is that the person doing the coaching is a knowledgeable person, that they can actually do what's required. They are good in my understanding, they are good at delivering explicit instruction. I've got a really good content area knowledge as well. So I can really support teachers. I'm better at it than than they currently are. And if they get better at it than me, that's marvellous. I'll tell them that. But I'm coming from a position where I do know more about it than they do. And that's different to a growth coaching model. I don't use so much growth coaching will say things like the teacher should talk more than the coach. I I talk more than the teacher, I think, and you've looked at some of my feedback and it's quite detailed. So as an instructional coach, I'm going in to provide you with what you need in order to be able to support you to get better at explicit instruction.
1: So what's, what's some of the evidence behind this? Is there evidence to suggest that instructional coaching is a effective way to support teachers and similarly that explicit instruction is an effective way to, to support student learning?
0: Well, I think if we separate into two, yes. Explicit instruction, if we start with that. So what I should have probably said at the beginning is I'm the chair of an independent public school in Western Australia that went from being an okay school to being a high performing school. So, you know, last year we had 10 out of 10 green NAPLAN boxes. This year we had a similarly good result. We're well above the Australian average and that's been hard fought and that's been putting in explicit instruction. So, the actual instructional pedagogy has made a massive difference on the children in those in that school. I'm the deputy chair of another school. I'm also involved in a high school that uses it. So I see the benefit of it in terms of going into those schools and seeing what other students, what the students can do. In 2015, there's a, there was a report by Bill Loudon, who's a WA academic, and he was asked by the Education Department to investigate high-performing schools in what we would probably consider to be lower-performing suburbs. So they're not the ritzy suburbs in town. These are suburbs where there is evidence of social disadvantage. The Ixia is below 1,000. And yet when you look at the NAPLAN results, you will see that these students are consistently outperforming schools in the better end of town. And so I know before and after that it's explicit instruction that's done that and that's what Bill Loudon's report actually showed. In terms of instructional coaching, Again, because there are so many interpretations of instructional coaching, it's hard to pin down in the research. And Dr. Jim Knight, he's someone that that people should follow up if they're interested in instructional coaching. He and I see eye to eye on so many things, except for the business of choice. Like if I'm going to coach you, he would say, "No, no, it needs to be Ollie's choice. Ollie needs to want to work with me." Well, if I've been asked by the principal to work with you, then a lot of the choices have kind of been removed. I'm going to be working with you on explicit instruction because that's the agreed reform-based agenda. I'm also going to have an expectation that you want to work with me. It's not going to be a case of you going, you know what, I'd rather lie down till the urge passes, which I'm sure some teachers might say. So a lot of the choice has actually been removed. So instructional coaching, I'm interested in research that I did that actually measured in a very precise way whether there was growth in teachers. When that is done well, and that's one of the things that I cited in the article that we're we're talking about today, when you do that well, you can see evidence of change because you're looking for very specific behaviours. But if I'm saying to you, okay, Ollie, what would you like to get better at? And you say, well, Lorraine, I'm a bit disorganised and that's impacting because it all impacts on student outcomes, it's impacting on, you know, my performance with the kids. And, you know, I will go, well, because instructional coaching in, in a very growth coaching mode is to say, well, Ollie, the answers are in you. You know, but with my model of instructional coaching, I don't always know whether the answers are in you, Ollie. <laughs> and I'm inclined just to tell you because it's easier to do that and it's more expedient. And explicit instruction says what is the most efficient an effective way of teaching something. And so I guess when I compare growth coaching, growth coaching is far more child-centred, if we want to look at it in that way. It's far more about what you bring to the table and what I bring to the table as a coach, and there's a lot of talking. And that's great. It's just not me. It's not what I do in schools, and it doesn't get the return of the effort that that I actually put into it, whereas I do with instructional coaching get a really good return in terms of changing teachers' capacity to teach.
1: And I will delve into that kind of volunteers versus conscripts thing yeah. a little bit later, because I think it's a very interesting area. But for now, so that you alluded to it then, but the paper that we're discussing yeah. today is entitled Teachers Taking Up Explicit Instruction The Impact of a Professional Development and Directive Instructional Coaching Model. Mm. So, what was the genesis of this paper?
0: Okay, well, as a, a university academic, I am required to conduct research. And for a number of years, I'd been supporting some schools through a voluntary capacity because I was on their board and also a number of other schools had asked me and I'd done some smaller scale research, just looking at teachers' attitudes towards different aspects of instruction. And so along came a a marvellous school principal who rang me up and he basically said, if you can imagine that scene from when Harry met Sally, he said, look, I want what they got. And I said, oh, and they were another school and I'd worked with that school. And I said, so tell me what you want. He said, well, I want... they want their data. I want what I want. What you did in that school because it's transformed the school. And I said, okay, I'd be happy to help. I said, but I think you need to know what I do. And he said, no, no. Okay. All right. Okay. So I was doing some <laughs> professional development, not for profit. And I said, well, look, you just come. And so he came and he sat through and at morning tea time, he rushed up to me and he said, but I don't like spelling mastery. I don't like spelling mastery. And that's one of the things I've been talking about. And I had to say, look, we'll call him Bob. <laughs> Bob, You know, Spelling Mastery is not for you, it's for the children. And I've looked at your NAPLAN data and it's not great for spelling. So if we work together, we will down the track use Spelling Mastery because it will have a significant impact on on a number of things. It will teach your teachers how to teach spelling. It will teach your kids how to spell and it will also teach your teachers how to spell. And so he said, okay, and he wasn't too happy and now he's one of the strongest advocates mm. ever, for spelling mastery. So having established that. He wasn't too sure what I did, but he knew that he wanted it. I sort of said, look, this is what I do. If you want this, this is what we will be doing. So it was an industry partnership grant, which is marvellous. He put in some money, and so the university put in some money, and it enabled me to run it for a one-year period. So I started at the end of one year doing some professional learning with the teachers because, of course, if you're going to coach somebody in something, they need to know what it is too, and they knew more than he did. In fact, his deputies, his assistant principals knew more than he did, and they were really keen, and some of them had been having a dabble, so it wasn't completely new to anybody in the school necessarily. So I did some professional learning before the year of intervention, and I did a a six-hour day on what is explicit instruction, because if we don't know what it is, what it isn't, what the research says, how it looks in the classroom, then... You don't have a shared understanding of what we're getting into, and that's critical. So it was a day on what is explicit instruction, and then the school holidays came, and so during that PD, I made sure I offered teachers lots and lots of oh, that they could have a data stick with sample PowerPoints on it. So if they wanted to prep over the holidays, they could. It was entirely up to them. Then at the beginning of the school year, we started up with some after-school sessions, and that was just getting people really used to the idea of what it was about. For example, I had another session with them on what the coaching would look like. So I was upfront about what coaching looked like. I had a colleague of mine come in who's marvellous and she ran a lesson. We had so many stray children waiting for their parents at the end of the after school because they went to the same school that their parents taught at. We, We put them all together as a class and we ran that as a demonstration lesson. I demonstrated another lesson to them. And then finally, because there were some teachers who ended up being the first five that I coached, who were pretty keen, I said, would you show what you've got so far? Because for anyone starting up new, it's quite daunting. And it's about as much knowing what your thought processes were, Ollie, in terms of putting all this stuff together as as how to deliver it. So they ran some little sessions and demonstrated what they'd been doing so far. Then I showed a couple more videos and then we rolled into the actual project.
1: Is this very similar to how you normally work with schools?
0: Yeah, it is. It is. So if I was to work with a school, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example down the track of when coaching doesn't go well, one of the big problems is everyone needs to be on the same page. Everyone needs to want to do this. So I don't want to go into a school where the principal's going, oh, I just want what what they had over there. And the staff go, who are you? What's going on? Everyone needs to be on board with it. So that was the understanding that I went into this with the principal. And I said, look, if we're going to do this, this is how we're going to do it. This school could not have been further from my house. In Perth standards, you know, an hour and 15 minutes is, is like you know, 300 kilometres away. But it was a significant distance to travel in traffic. So it was a tough drive. And I had my son was a lot younger then. So, you know, imposed quite a lot of challenges on me. And I I thought, you know what? I said to the principal, if I'm going to do this, then I need your three administrators, your deputy principals to be involved as well. So they became the admin coaches, because I'm only going to do this for a year. And when I'm done, they have to take over. And I'd also had the experience previously in going into a school where I'd turn up and see you as the principal and you'd go, oh, hi, Lorraine, great to see you. And I'd go off with a clipboard or a a laptop and I'd end up writing all these notes on staff and I was the only one who'd seen it. So I knew more about your staff in one day than you did. And Mm -hmm. so that was a big issue for me as well. So I said, look, here's the deal. I'll do this. We'll do the PD. You pick the teachers. I'll support the teachers by going in and coaching them, but I want an administrator with me and they cannot be the person who is that performance and manager. So right. we removed that variable nice and early because that was something that you know teachers told me quietly later was quite a lot of anxiety for them, the thought that their performance manager was coming in with me in order to watch them teach.
1: I mean, that's an interesting point because I understand the importance of that. And it's something Dylan William talked about in, in the podcast I've just recorded with him. But people in schools talk, right? So even if someone isn't your direct line manager, surely teachers think that they're likely to speak to that performance development manager anyway.
0: Well, you know, and if you look at the research against coaching or people raise concerns about coaching now, they go, it's covert, you know, surveillance and, you know, people are keeping an eye on you. From my perspective, when I coach, if, if I'm coaching you, Ollie, you and I have a protected relationship. When the principal asks me how Ollie's going, well, it's only if we'd had an agreement that he can see your feedback In some circumstances, he won't see your feedback because that's not the arrangement. If he is going to see your feedback, then I will make it clear to you that your feedback is going to be shared and and teachers need to know that. And also, I guess it's important too, I, I have no status whatsoever when I go into a school. You know, I might work at a university, mm. and that's scary for people, and they don't know me, which is scary. But all I can be is a, is a kindly person who will come in and help them. So I, I will bend over backwards to be helpful. I will give sample powerpoints. I demonstrate in your class. I'll do whatever it takes to kind of win you over, and also show you that. You know, I'm not going to talk to, about you. So any of the feedback sessions that I have are always done in the most discreet way that we can do it. I don't like having to do it when you're out on yard duty. Sometimes I have to do that because it's my only moment I can catch you. But I'll ask permission first as to whether that's okay. So I think that the, the one thing that works so well in the schools that I've worked in so far, and I'm doing a lot of that in the Kimberley and WA at the moment, is everyone wants to improve. And so as soon as I see you do something well, Ollie, and I'll tell you that, gee, Ollie, today when I watched you teach, that was fantastic. You actually do want to tell other people about that. And so a bit of success breeds success. And that's a very positive thing in a school as well.
1: Still in the challenges, let's let's come back to this volunteers versus conscripts kind of challenge. So the first five teachers, you said they were quite keen.
0: They were keen. Some of them were very keen because they had already had a dabble in their classroom. One of them had been my student at uni and so was quite keen to resume the relationship. They'd been identified because the, the staff, the principal said to me, how should we identify? And I said, well, what you're really trying to do is to identify the teachers who are going to become the next round of coaches. So you need to identify some teachers who could potentially become coaches or good examples in your school because I will go. Okay, so the idea is for this thing to be self-sustaining, so I don't have to drive all the way back here, you are going to have three admin coaches who see what I see. And that was the point of having the admin coaches there. We ran a an apprenticeship sort of program with them in the sense that their goal was for them to see what what I saw. So we'll talk about how we we scored and, and how we observed teachers. But the idea was, I need you, Ollie, to see what I see. So we've got shared understanding of what good explicit instruction looks like so that when I go, you can look at other people. And more importantly, you can go in and demonstrate as well. And we can all be on the same page.
1: So I'm, I'm curious because it would presumably take a little bit extra teacher time to be involved with you. Like they'd have yeah. to reflect on your feedback. They'd have to prepare their lessons in a different way. They'd have to take time, whether it be during their lunchtime yard duty or or their usual lunchtime to meet with you. Yeah. Is this something that was linked into their usual kind of professional development or anything yeah. like that? Or did they get time allowance and, and how important is that?
0: Oh, that's very important. I I try and hold to the the notion that you can only ask teachers to do 10% on top of what they're already doing. So hence, when it came to the actual design of the lessons and you and I had established a relationship, I would watch you teach. And then at the end of it, I might say, you know, Ollie, that was a great lesson that you you taught today. I've made some suggestions about how you could make it better. But I actually have a lesson that I can give you. And I I would give you a lesson. And I would say, look, I've never taught that before, but if you want to send it to me, beforehand so I try and circumvent any issues and some teachers took me up on that and some teachers didn't Certainly in the school that the article is based on, we were able to release teachers during school time. So because the three administrators were part of the coaching team, whoever wasn't involved in sitting in with the lesson would go off and relieve that teacher for up to half an hour. So they would just jump in and take their class. They didn't have to do relief notes or anything. they just jump in and take the class. It also meant that in order to make it easier for teachers, I won't ideally watch anybody in the afternoon. You know, the kids kids have had enough. They've had enough. It's not fair. So I would go out two days a week to the school, and I would do the observations in the morning and the feedback sessions in the afternoon. So again, that was just a very simple way of making it a little bit kinder for the teachers. I will say that there was great enthusiasm in being involved and. You know, I'll often speak at conferences and teachers will ask me if I will come and coach them. Mm. So I don't think it's as daunting as it is perhaps perceived to be by some people. Of course, in choosing five quite enthusiastic and outspoken people, if you like, within the school, we knew that other people would ask them, how was it? And that some of the feedback that I got from the, the teachers, they said, oh, well, I asked, how was it? And they said, well, it was okay. She was nice. You know, she was kind, she was helpful, you know, I I felt good as a result of being coached. So we knew that having some really positive people in there in the first five would have an impact on the second five, who weren't necessarily as enthusiastic as the first five.
1: Have there been contexts where you have been called in by a school and the principal has said you are going to work with these teachers because they are struggling? Yeah. How has that played out?
0: Awful, awful, awful. Let me tell you straight up. I'll tell you two things that are just awful. This is really early on in the piece, Ollie, and I'll I'll never do it again. The principal called me and I knew the principal and I'd worked with them previously and they, they said, look, I've got these teachers. I'd really love it if you'd come in and do some work with them. And I said, sure. I said, so have they done any professional development on explicit instruction? Oh, yeah, 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 I've done that. And they hadn't. So I remember this particular teacher and I had gone out to the school to meet with all the teachers I was going to coach so I could have a chat I could give them sample feedback and show them what it would look like and a any fears that they had because you know my feedback form is it remain pretty well the same throughout the whole process of doing this and it says clearly what I need to see so if you're doing that then that's what I'm going to give you feedback against so And this particular teacher was sick that day so I didn't get to see her and I was feeling badly about that so I got to the school early and usually you know I get taken around by the principal and they show me where everybody lives in the school and I was seeing this particular person I think that you know the third person for the morning usually see about four people a day that's as many as you can see without going a bit crazy anyway um, I was primed to go in and see her but she wasn't in her room and she'd gone somewhere so I didn't get to meet her before I coached her and that was terrible in hindsight that was not good so I turn up to the door and I like to get there five minutes before it's time for the lesson to start It was raining outside. I knocked on the door. She opened the door and she said, you're early. And I said, oh, okay. And she just shut the door. And I said, okay. So I stood out in the rain for (laughs) a few minutes. And then eventually she opened the door and I came in and sort of, you know, sat down at the back of the room and she had a clicker that you use to click on your PowerPoint slides and so she sat down at her desk with a cup of coffee, which I thought was particularly brave for anybody to do. She pointed that clicker at the screen and she just yelled at the kids, go, really loudly and they started reading stuff off the screen and I was like, wow, this is not explicit instruction. And then she said, okay. Okay copy that down and then they had to copy it down in their books and all the time I'm thinking I have to give this person feedback she's scary she was really scary so you know I sat through the lesson and it was it was awful and I felt for the kids and I thought you know I'm gonna have to meet with this person so I had a chat with her and I said look tell me how you think the lesson went and she said oh it was good I said, okay, and that's always a bit of a challenge. And I said, okay, all right. I said, well, tell me what aspects of your lesson actually align to an explicit instruction approach. And she said, well, you've got to have a PowerPoint. And I said, yep, you certainly had a PowerPoint. I said, but, you know, tell me, have you had any professional learning in this? And she said, no, 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 I've watched such and such. And I said, oh, and what school are they at? And they weren't a school that I've ever worked with and I don't know what she actually watched. So that for me was really concerning because that teacher couldn't have done well. She didn't know what she was supposed to be doing and the principal had kind of sent me in as the bad guy, I think, to, you know, have to have to to deal with the situation. What I then said to the principal is, look, I I can't see any more of your staff until we do some professional learning, which we did. And then I was able to go back in there a bit later on and it was a little bit more of a positive experience for, for everybody else. But sometimes that does happen, Ollie, and, and that's not my job. I'm there to be a an expert outsider, a kindly person. I don't have any status in the school.
1: Wow, that sounds like a challenging situation.
0: Oh, I can give you <laughs> I can give you other examples. <laughs> that's
1: right. We we might come back to other challenges later on in the interview, but for now, maybe we maybe we jump into the classroom. And if you could tell us what happens or what did happen during this study. When you walked into a classroom to conduct an observation, who else was okay. there? What kind of framework were you using? How long were you in there for? Were you watching all the time, then making notes later okay. or making notes as you go? I'm I'm curious to, as to these things.
0: Okay. Well, I try to be as as unobtrusive as possible. So I'll try and get there a little bit earlier just so the kids get used to me being there. Although obviously with this particular school, I watched each teacher five times. So the kids got pretty used to me and they would chat with me. Yeah, so five, five.
1: Why is that? Tell us about that.
0: Why five times? Well, I had a gut feeling from previous research that I'd done that you don't always see improvement between observation one and two the most improvement seems to be between number two and number three. And for some people, they need that a little bit longer. And I also wanted – this was an important study. It was a funded study, and so I wanted to make it very clear to the teachers that we were in for the long haul. And so it took me two terms to do the first five teachers because by the time you've dodged book week, NAPLAN, you can't do the first week of term, you can't do the last week of term. There's all these things you have to dodge. I had to see them usually – two weeks after I'd done an observation. Two weeks is about the right time, any sooner than that, and it's not enough time for them to have practised the things that perhaps you've asked them to to do. So I would go in. It was prearranged. There was a schedule. Everybody knew when it was happening. There were no nasty surprises. There was also an expectation that when I turned up, it wasn't an event. It wasn't you going, oh, geez, Lorraine's coming in, I better turn it on and do an explicit instruction lesson and then I'll go back to, you know, something else when she goes. That was why the admin coaches were involved. They would be going in when I wasn't there just to see that, in fact, the teacher was continuing to teach in this way because if you're going to get good at it, you've got to practice doing it. Mm -hmm. And doing one-off events, which is another thing that I've observed in schools, it just doesn't work you know, I'll go in and watch a teacher sometimes and I can see they've borrowed someone else's PowerPoint. The kids got no idea what's going on. Kids don't know when to respond. You talked about taple Engagement norms are important too. Kids don't know what to do with the whiteboards. Teacher doesn't have an attention signal. So I can see it's just for me and it's on show. So we didn't want that. So the the teachers knew in advance, they also knew that they could contact me up until I think maybe the night before I was going in there and I'd have a quick look at something if they wanted me to. So I went in, I would sit at the back of the room and I'd have the admin coach near me, but they couldn't talk to me because when I go in there, if I'm watching, because they were maybe just only watching one or two people, I might be watching you know two or three people in the morning and I've got to concentrate so I sit and I look I use a laptop and I just type like crazy so I don't make a huge amount of eye contact with the teacher but because I can sense when things are going wrong if they are going wrong and again this is something that I will have talked to you about beforehand and you want me to I will jump in and take over if you think that's appropriate. So if you give me a bit of a wave and you you look at me, and some people do look at me like the deer in the headlights, and they'll go, oh, I don't know what to do. I'll quite happily jump in and take the lesson on for you if you want me to for a little while, and then I'll pass it back to you. So very early on in the piece, there were three admin coaches, and there was one particular coach, and it was a male deputy. And he and I would go in, and we would sit away from each other. But I would often just look across at him when I saw something and he would be looking across at me at the same time because we'd both seen the same thing. So his scores, because we never showed the teachers because it wasn't it wasn't about the scores for the teachers, we used scores to help you and I determine whether we saw the same thing. So if I was watching the daily review, which is the fast-paced review of previously learned material at the beginning of the lesson, and I thought it was it was fantastic and it contained all the little elements that I had in the box on the side of the feedback form, then you might give it a six or a seven out of seven. And, a, and making sure that we both saw roughly that it was worth a certain number of marks was a way of trying to help the admin coaches to see what I saw. So we would sit and we would type up our feedback and give it a score. And then we would go back to an office and we would email it to a second author in the paper, Dr. Wendy Moore, who's one of my former PhD students. And so we had to send it off to her before we could tell each other. And then we would actually have a look to see, oh my goodness, how interesting. And we then had a conversation about what we saw because, as well as coaching the teachers, I was trying to coach the coaches. And that was really, really, really useful. Then we would have a conversation about how to respond to the teacher. And that's where. That was the hardest thing to do in terms of supporting the admin coaches because sometimes they'd be quite blunt and they'd go, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. And that's important. It's good to give a record of what actually happened in the lesson. But what they weren't able to do was to say, Ollie, when you did this, this happened. If you did it some more, you might find that this happened. So I had a better ability at crafting the feedback. So they didn't give written feedback for quite some time. I wanted to make sure then, then they would get a copy of my feedback and I would get a copy of their feedback and that's a whole other research paper I haven't written. But we then went through and tried to figure out how they could strengthen their feedback with the goal being that at the end of it, they could give better quality feedback as well. Then it would be somebody else or we'd break and then we'd bring in the teacher. And the teacher would come in, and the first thing I'd always say, I'll, and I must say, as I was leaving the classroom, I'll always make eye contact. I'll always give them a little thumbs up. That is not the time to say, "Oh, Ollie, you know, it would have been really great if you'd done no, 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 no. no. You just, just that was thanks so much, Ollie. I really appreciate being in your room." And then I'm out. It's when we sit down, and I'll say, "Ollie, how did the lesson go?" Well, by the time I coach people a couple of times, they tell me exactly how the lesson went, and some of them were incredibly hard on themselves. Like, "Oh." I didn't do this and I didn't do that, and I go, well, gee, you did so many other things. So that was a good opening, a good opening statement for me. Plus, it enabled the teacher if they didn't feel that it went well to tell me first before perhaps I told them. And then they would get a copy of the feedback in front of them, or we'd email it to them later, depending on whether I got to a printer or not. I'd go through the feedback, and then we would end with, you know, what were they going to do next time? What was something that they would focus on?
1: So this marking rubric, where where does it come from and what's on it?
0: Again, this is all about explicit instruction. So if you're going to teach explicit instruction, you're going to have to start with a daily review. So on the left-hand side, the first thing you're going to see is what goes into a daily review, what we might be looking for. And then on the right-hand column, there's a mark out of seven. And all the different elements of explicit instruction have a mark allocated them for something So pacing gets a particular mark, your independent practice that you give the students, does that match your learning objective? That gets a particular mark. So basically I've looked at all the elements associated with explicit instruction and just come up with a document that gives you a mark out of 30. It could be out of 50. It could be out of anything. But as I said, the teachers never saw that. That column was just removed. It just gave us a capacity to measure change in their practice
1: Okay. So is that a column that you would usually have when you work with schools or was it only because that numerical column or was it only because this was a study and you wanted to quantify that?
0: Well, sometimes if I'm going in and working with it, it depends what the nature of the relationship is with the school. So in the Kimberley Schools Project at the moment, no, I wouldn't do that. But I am, again, I'm coaching for something very, very specific. As soon as you start offering a buffet and you go, okay, well, Ollie, I don't mind if you do this. You can do some Kagan, and you can do some cooperative learning. You can do some this. You can do some that. It becomes very hard to coach well in my mind. So I coach for very specific things. And anything I coach you want, If I'm coaching you on beginning reading, then there are certain things that I will look for, but I will have predetermined those and you will have done professional learning with me on them. You know, I'm working with teachers in the Kimberley and they have taken, it's taken them three terms to get good at doing something that takes for four-year-olds six minutes. Now, you know, I've had teachers blowing into paper bags. It has been really stressful for some people because they're not used to teaching this way. And If I'm going to pull the instructional rug out from underneath you and say, okay, I need you to do something different, I need to be very clear and direct with you in terms of what it is that I want you to do. So that feedback form is absolutely critical. And certainly the one that I use in the Kimberley for beginning reading, it is very, very, very precise. It tells you what you need to do. And if you follow that, you'll get really good at it fast.
1: Something that you said then in terms of the admin coach has really resonated with me. And that was about using the numerical marks as a stimulus for conversation because I had yeah. I had a uh, Jenny Gore on a couple of months ago and yeah, uh, we I... had a play with quality teaching rounds in school yeah. and you know you're marking your peers based upon their lesson or sorry you're marking the lesson should I say mm. important to make that distinction but people were quite apprehensive about that and thought it was you know bad idea why do we need to mark but it's actually really when you go. I gave it a six, Why I gave it a seven. Why did you give it a yeah. seven? That's where the really magic happens in terms of the conversation. That's what I found anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree with you. And I think particularly when people have to justify it, one, one, of, one of the big challenges, I think, for anyone coaching is if you don't have a good understanding of what it is you're coaching for, you will struggle to do that well. And if I look at the kind of comments that initially came back with a couple of those admin coaches... It was pretty brutal what they were saying and they were just like, just putting it straight out on the page. There was no finessing. There's a lot of finessing involved if you're going to do this well, I think.
1: Mm. Another thing you said there was this rubric very much about helping the admin coaches or the other coaches in training mm. see what you see in the classroom. That's
0: right.
1: Tell us more about that.
0: Okay. So I guess I can't remember what it was like not to teach this way. I wish I could. All right, I do sometimes think about my first year of teaching, and I, I don't think it was my best my, my best effort. But I think about how I would approach something. And these days, when I go into a lesson and when I'm about to to watch it, I have a notion of how it's going to unfold if it's going to be explicit, and I can now just do that. But other people can't do that. If you're just learning, tackle. If you're just learning engagement norms, then they're just the delivery components. You've also got to focus on the structure of the lesson as well. There's a lot going on in this model. It is not a simplistic model at all. To do it well, and I think that whatever model you're taking up as an educator, if you are going to embrace play based learning, if you're going to be doing a more cooperative learning approach, they all have inherent underpinnings and assumptions and elements within them and to do them well you've got to honor them. So writing it all down is really helpful. So you know I'm playing around with rubrics with secondary teachers now to really support them so that when they go in and look, they can just look and go, oh okay, so if I'm seeing this, this quantifies how that person is going. There it just helps people, I think, to see what they should be looking for.
1: Can anyone become an instructional coach? Like it sounds like at this school, you said, all right, I need your three APs or deputies or whatever they were. I need them on board because obviously leadership is really important. Could it have been the case that they just happened to be people who you really struggled to support, to see this kind of things that you see in the classroom, one, and two, to give massage feedback or finesse, as you put it, feedback in in the way that's necessary?
0: Absolutely, Ollie. And it's interesting because that was just the scenario that presented itself. But in recent times, I've had the opportunity. And if you think about what John Hattie says, he talks about expert teachers versus experienced teachers. Some of the best teachers at explicit instruction are beginning teachers. And so you set up an unfortunate dynamic and I've I've seen it happen now where one of my best secondary teachers has only been teaching a couple of years and she is a fantastic instructional coach But the problem is she's only been teaching a couple of years. So when I put her into that dynamic with an experienced teacher, it's very hard for that experienced teacher to take advice from her. So I guess the status of an assistant principal was important. One thing I've noticed too is that if you're going to deliver feedback, if you and I just have a chat, or if you think about the worst case scenario is the principal suddenly says, okay, you are going to have to do some peer coaching. So I go, Ollie, Ollie, we'll work together. And we'll agree not to really watch each other, but we'll tell everybody we did. So that's your worst case scenario, okay? Yeah. And I go, no, no, you were great, you were great, no, you were great, you were great. So you don't want that. Okay, so the problem is, I guess, that having the third party there during the feedback sessions really amplified the impact of those feedback sessions, good and bad, I guess, for the teacher. Now, some of the teachers were really good at it fast, And they found it just anxiety driven because they just wanted to be better and better and better and faster Mm -hmm. and faster. But having that admin coach there was really important because that was a validation that this is important. This is what we're doing in the school and we care about how you're going. And then also in the time that I wasn't there, they had to run around and check in on that person and see how they were going and provide the support that I was supporting. So I think it is hard. I wouldn't want to say, look, I'll take any administrator because they'll just be great at it. They're not. The principal concerned wasn't, he was never involved in the coaching because he really didn't understand the model. He, he came to understand it towards the end. But I've worked in other schools where the last person I would ever want you to come and ask in the school, how how did you manage to achieve this, is the principal because it was not the <laughs> principal, it was the deputy. It, mm. It's got to have a, somebody in the school who really understands the model and then you can do it.
1: I'm going to come back to that early career teacher because it's a bit of a relevant story for myself. Is there a way that you have built a culture within that school that has that early career teacher who you said is an excellent instructional coach that has enabled them to give feedback to more experienced teachers in a productive way?
0: Yes, I have. What we've had to do is to pair her though with an administrator so I ran professional learning on Monday. I went to a regional part of Western Australia. Lots and lots of people came. It was a great day. And then I got a prince, an, an effusive email from the principal the following day who'd organised it telling me he'd seen all these amazing things happening in his classrooms. That's fantastic and that's often what happens. So as I said to the teachers on Monday, there will be, you know, there's 120 of them then. I reckon there's five of you it's usually one per cohort, who'll just go away quietly and completely transform their teaching in the next two days. They'll go, yep, this speaks to me. I really like this. And they'll just get on with it. So what you're trying to do is to harness those people because I want to take someone who hasn't managed to do that. And I want them to be able to go and have a look at Ollie and see how Ollie's doing it. So it's very important to harness those people. But at the same time, you have to protect them because for as many teachers who would have been going on Monday, oh, yes, this is not what I learned at uni, but oh, my goodness, this seems to make great sense. Some of them might be experienced teachers and some were quite experienced teachers who I could tell were resonating with it and some were beginning teachers. There will be a bunch of teachers in there going, oh, my God, I just want to lie down till the urge passes. I don't want to have to do this. So getting an enthusiastic beginning teacher to go in and coach them is not going to be a good idea. You need people who are open to actually doing it.
1: So you said partnering with a more senior person. How does that partnership work? Do they both go into the classroom?
0: Well, it's as simply as seeing them into an email. So if I was, and I think of this particular young woman that I work with, so she's in a high school situation, so she's going to come in and observe you. She had said to me, oh, look, I may- By
1: herself, just her?
0: No, she, yes, yeah, she would come in perhaps and observe you on her own, but now I'm saying that she okay. probably needs to take an administrator with her because she'd okay. set it up and then she'd rock up to the classroom and the teacher would go, oh, no, not today or something like that. So she wasn't getting in and there were some barriers there, so it was better to say, look, we do have a little expert in our school. She's very good at it. We are trying to take this up in a certain department. So maybe it was just a science department. So when she emails you to make a time, she'll actually CC in one of the administrators. So that was a way of actually showing, look, this is important. We do want to do this. I guess also too, it was about her confidence when I was working with her because you know she would say, "Oh, I don't, I don't know whether I can say that in the feedback." And I said, "Well, we can say it nicely." So I spent a lot of time trying to help her to shape her feedback so she felt more confident giving it because, again, as a beginning teacher, you don't necessarily feel that confident telling somebody who's senior to you that maybe they need to change their practice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Talking about finessing feedback. Yeah. When I say, you know, the words written feedback or or giving written feedback, is there anything that comes to mind for you that you know you consistently use? Are there any phrases you consistently use? Is there any format that you consistently use that you just know works and you think it would be helpful to share with some people who might be listening and might be in, in roles where they have to do this?
0: Okay, so first of all, you've got to err on the side of the positive. So I'm always going to start off by saying, so say I'm seeing you for the second time, if I'm going to be, and the first time is always quite harrowing for me, because I don't know how you're going to go. I don't know how much I'm going to have to write in the feedback. And I want to try and encapsulate what I've observed, because I've never seen you teach before. The second time I watch you teach, it's so much easier. So in the first time I watch you teach, at the end of the feedback, I'm going to have a box that says for next time. And so Basically, the day that I go back to, to watch you, I will reread the feedback, but I will cut and paste the for next time, and I'll just dump that straight into the new the new document. I guarantee that more often than not, when I say for next time, I'll give a very exacting thing to do. So I'll be very specific. I'll say, Ollie, next time, I would like to see more full sentence answers. So when you say this, the students will say that. I guarantee with most people I work with, the first thing they will do is demonstrate that for me. And so I'm able to say, oh, when I watched you teach today, it was great to see use useful sentence answers. I suggested that that would have a really positive impact on your students. And it did. When you asked Harry this, and, and so I will actually script it out as to what I actually saw happen in the room. I will say things like, if you do this, you might see this. So I use words like if and might. If I was teaching your lesson, I might try. So I really try and soften it in terms of the way that I'm I'm addressing you. I know for sure that if you're getting really good at it, I can say, you know, Ollie, the best teachers I see do this. Yeah. And I'll almost guarantee in the next lesson, <laughs> you will do that <laughs> nice and early. So I know that once you have a relationship with that teacher, I can get them really good at it really fast. And they will They will examine that feedback. They like the grid. They like the fact that it's no point saying, because if I watch a lesson and it's just not great, and I think, oh, goodness, where to start? I start with the structure. So if we can't get the basic structure of the lesson right, we're going to have some issues. So I'll start with the structure first, and then I'll start picking off TAPL and the engagement norms. So you don't have a good structure. You're going to struggle to teach explicitly. So you have to sort of know where to go first, And I I won't ever ask you to do any more than maybe two to three things. If we're going to do five sessions together, I can leave some things for later and I know what comes later and I know what you'll actually figure out along the way. And so I'd rather let you do that if I can. So I don't want to be, I don't want to give you, and that's the problem with sometimes an admin coach or anyone coaching will just say, right. And they'll give like a 20, 20, point, you know, dot list of all these things that you didn't do which is devastating for a teacher. So got to be positive and, you know what, I will, I will do it for them. If I feel that I need to, I'll say, hey, look, I've, and I've, also, I've attached a little PowerPoint that I think you might like or why don't you try this next time you see the kids.
1: I was grateful that you sent through some of your written feedback for me to have a look at. It was very interesting. It was very generous of you, de-identified, of course. Yes. There was one teacher who is obviously having, having some struggles and yeah. I could see that you were trying to give some positive feedback and your feedback was essentially, I can see you put in a lot of effort. Yes. Is it not the case that teachers see through that?
0: Well, what, what would I say if I didn't say that, Ollie? I'd be saying, you know, <laughs> great PowerPoints, but they weren't really about explicit instruction. That would be a, a, an awful thing to say. Mm. Plus, I have a relationship with this teacher. I like her, she likes me, Mm. as I I said to you off there. I mean, I was in her classroom a couple of weeks ago and when she saw me, she was so happy she hugged me. So I have a good relationship with her and I know that she wants to do better. I also know that she tries very, very hard. So I want to acknowledge and honour the fact that she does do a fabulous-looking PowerPoint. Mm. She does go to a lot of trouble. She is in there early. She has set up her classroom because if she didn't do those things, she would have issues teaching explicitly.
1: Mm. You talked about engagement norms. Yes. This is a, a phrase that perhaps some listeners have not mm. heard before. And also when I was reading through the rubric that you sent me, it was an area that I was quite, quite interested in, in as well. It's a lot about routines, reminding me quite a bit of Doug Lemov's
0: yeah. stuff. Mm.
1: So could you tell us a bit about engagement norms and what, what you hope to see in terms of engagement norms in a teacher's classroom?
0: Okay, well, I'll tell you roughly what some of the engagement norms are so you know. What you need to imagine is is lots of teachers like to talk. And so if you're talking, 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 you don't know what the te- what the students are currently attending to. They could be attending to anything. And some of you might have mentally checked out to your happy place as you're your, you know, listening to this, and that's okay, you're adults, you can do that. <laughs> but if I regularly check for understanding and I employ some engagement norms, I can get you, as a class of students, to indicate to me what you're thinking. Or more importantly, I can get you thinking back on me. So a very simple engagement norm is to say, I'll say tick, tick, you say boom. So I say tick, tick, and the kids go boom. Boom. That's an attention signal. We'll try another one. We'll see if you're any good at this. Sharp bait. Uh, munch. Ooh, ha, ha. Come on. Finding Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> sorry,
1: sorry. All
0: right. So there's a number <laughs> of them. My favourite at the moment is I say flat tyre and you go sss. S- flat tyre. S- Right. Okay. That's mm,
1: I've he- I've I've heard of a similar one when when uh, waterfalls get yeah. them to get them to quiet down.
0: So the thing is. In order to do that engagement norm, you had to stop what you were doing and and pay attention to me. So it's a way of getting kids to pay attention. Also something like go back to trebuchet. So trebuchet is a tricky word. If I want you to read that word in a learning intention or in some information on the screen, I'm going to teach it to you first. So I'm going to say pronounce with me. So I'm going to say, listen, trebuchet. And the kids are going to say that nice and slowly and then we're going to say it all together, having broken it down into syllables, trebuchet. So that's pronounce with me. I'm then going to say, look, girls and boys, there's some information on the screen. Just track with your finger or your eyes while I read it to you and then you will read with me. Now, again, you're engaged because you're doing something. So it's ways of engaging the kids so they are doing something. Then I will stop because I like to talk a lot and I'll go, right, A's tell your B's. B's tell your A. We'll do a quick pair share. Very targeted, usually around chapel. Then I will pull a pupstick. stick. Now, the pop sticks are really, really important with explicit instruction because this is an equal opportunity classroom. I just told you the answer. There's a good chance it's still on the screen behind me. I just want you to remember this stuff. So anybody's fair game, I'll pull a pop stick. I'll also use whiteboards. The mini whiteboards are so powerful for formative assessment. Three, two, one, chin it. I look around the room. I can see immediately that everybody is showing me their answer. And finally, when I see you've written an answer on your board and I see, Ollie, you have the number four on your board, can you help me to understand how you got that answer? And you weren't just copying off your friend who's sitting next to you. So the full sentence answers become really important too. So they are the engagement norms. What am I looking for? Well, initially when I'm watching teachers, I like to see an attention signal. I'd like to see some whiteboard use because that's a great way of ascertaining how the lesson's going, how you're going and how the kids are going. And the things that become the the icing on the cake are probably the full sentence answers. Initially, teachers will do that because they think, oh, full sentence answer, but then it peters off. And then they'll stop regularly checking for understanding and they maybe use the pop sticks initially and then they stop using the pop sticks. So all of them in concert are really, really effective. The very skilled teacher knows when to use which and they use them consistently throughout the lesson. They become almost second nature. So they go from being, you know, what do we say, consciously incompetent to unconsciously competent. They just do it. It's what they do.
1: Great. I'm interested in how you build these norms because I've started using whiteboards in my class a yes. lot this year and they've been fantastic. But, you know, the 3-2-1 doesn't quite work mm-hmm. every time. There's often students who kind of whether on purpose or by accident, kind of haven't finished and don't want to show me their work or sometimes they just take a little bit longer. Mm. How do you how do you build those norms and kind of make it snappy and really time efficient?
0: Well, I, I see people do it really well, Ollie, and it's about training the kids because you're learning this, they're learning this. So I have some whiteboard etiquette rules. For older kids, if you're in the right demographic, you can get them to say three, two, one, mugshot. They quite like that. Hashtag wipeout which is a bit cooler when you're in high school. I get the kids to hover their boards. So if they're ready, hover your board, show me you're a super fast learner, and then I will get them to show me the boards. I will put up, because I like to differentiate at the point of need. If you're a really smart kid, Ollie, and you can already do this, so I'm going to put three problems on the board, and the weaker child is probably only going to do the first problem in the time that it's going to take you to solve all three. So that's my way of keeping everybody busy. So I'll differentiate at the point of need. I will teach... If I'm teaching an algorithm for two-digit multiplication, and I'm amazed that I'm actually even saying that because I'm not a maths teacher, but if I was, I would teach everybody that particular process. I'd do a self-talk. I'd have the kids actually talking through the process, and then I'd say, right, off you go, and there'd be three examples, and one of them would be really hard, but everybody would be working on the same examples. Okay you just be doing it to your particular level.
1: And then you just kind of give feedback on the first one, the whole class feedback? No, or?
0: no, I'll give feedback on all of them because, Ollie, if you're my smart kid, I'm going to come to you third. I'm going to say, okay, let's have a look. Three, two, one, chin it, fantastic. Then I'm going to put the answers on the screen because it's not a secret. I'm going to tell them what the answer is. It's no point doing this. Some teachers go, oh, yes, yeah, oh, no, oh, Ollie, goodness, you know. And no, 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 the answer's on the board. Have a look at your answer. Who needs to change their answer? Have a look. And then I'll ask the kids to be accountable and then I'll choose the kid who's got it right and I'll go, oh, go on, Ollie, you got the answer. Tell us how you did it because I need everybody to hear how you did it. And then I might choose another child who's got it wrong and I go, help me to understand your misconception. Where do you think you went wrong? Think about what Ollie just said. Okay, so I'm I'm trying to see straight away how they're all going, but at the same time I want it to be educative. Okay, and then if you, there's a really hard example up there, I'll ask you, Ollie, to give me that answer. And and how you actually solved it.
1: That's really interesting that you flashed the the answer up, and I guess that saves time because it means you don't have to go yes, 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 no, change this, yeah, and you don't have to kind of think think on the spot as much, and they can kind of self correct. That's good. You got me you got me thinking, I'll have to give that a go.
0: Well, all I see, Ollie, is I see teachers and they take forever and they're going around the room and you can just see by the look on their face, like, oh no, you didn't get it right. And at the end of it, sometimes they completely forget to tell the kids what the answer is. And so I'm sitting there holding my board thinking, I don't even know whether I got the right answer or not. And that's not good.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's great. I, what I'll try in my classroom, I'll try coupling with that with, a, yeah. with kind of show call. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure you've heard of Doug Lim or show call. But what I what I often do at the moment is just take a photo using an app called Riot yeah. of students' work. And so you could do what you do, and yeah. a student who's hovering take a photo of their work and have it ready to project up, and yeah. then that's good. And I really like the idea of asking a student who struggled with it. Can you let us know what, what mistake you made? It yeah. might've been just a little one, yeah. you know, cause that all help, helps us all learn kind of a thing yeah. or something yes. like that. So thanks. Good tips. Let's move on to the impact. Mm. So you were looking at the impact on teachers, instructional practices on teachers, views of instructional coaching mm. and on perceived impact upon student learning. And it's, you know, it's a little bit after this Study now, so we can also talk about actual impact. I hope, yeah. potentially, where, where it's long enough ago that we've got some data. But to start off with, what was the impact you saw of this coaching in this context on teachers' instructional practices?
0: Well, the graphs in the article are indicative of the fact that everybody improved and and that for me was really telling because that's that real sort of fine grain data that's like a single subject case design where you're really tracking them to see whether they improve so over the five sessions they all improved some improved more than others but they all improved they all had positive change so for me there was a very positive impact in terms of the capacity to do what I'd operationally defined as explicit instruction. I can't tell you about the behaviour in their room. I can't tell you about the displays on their walls. We didn't look for that. We just looked to see whether they'd taken up the explicit instruction model as we defined it. So there was good take-up in terms of the teachers. I guess if you think about their teachers' views on instructional coaching – we were interested in
1: that as well. Oh, before we jump into that, yeah, I, I want to do one at a time because there were some great quotes in the paper and I want to share okay, one right. on teacher instructional practice yep. practices. And this one comes from Nadine who had 22 years of experience as a teacher and she was quite sceptical about the program she beforehand. Was. But here's a quote from afterwards. She said, well, Mandy, who is you, yep. uh, pseudonymous you, well, Mandy makes you think about what you're teaching it's going to sound terrible because for years I knew what sort of basic things I needed to teach, but I never thought about the steps to get to a certain point. Like, say, teaching writing. I would just get them to write without looking at the steps. And and then she goes on to talk about how she's yeah, yeah. you know implemented your approaches. So it's really clear that even someone after 22 years yeah. who, after 22 years, didn't have an idea of how to teach writing, for example, which is yeah. a bit scary. But I'm sure the case in in many cases, there was an impact there.
0: It's quite prevalent, Ollie, and it's a good point that you raised. But I think what's really fantastic about Nadine is she had a capacity to say that. Like, I I thought I was doing fine and I was quite sceptical about this whole coaching thing. And I'm very mindful of somebody like Nadine because she's an experienced teacher. And so when I walk into her room, she's got good routines going. On the surface, you know, things are looking pretty good. And it was when I watched her teach and I realised, gosh, you know, there is a more effective way of teaching writing here. So I think as she points out in the comment, I sort of said, look, would you like me to show you? And she was like, hmm, okay. All right, and that's good because that's good for my credibility because I don't know her children, Ollie. They don't know me. I have zero relationship with her kids. But if I get them all sitting in a circle doing this thing with the hoops where we're stepping out sounds in words and then we're stepping out words in sentences, she was like, wow, okay, there's something in this because my kids are doing this and you don't know my kids.
1: Mm. Yeah, oh, and I can read a quote about that. It says, also, like Manny, just, she showed me how to do something. So she mentioned in her feedback about using hoops to step out of sentence. So she came in to show me for just five minutes. And little things like that made a world of difference. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's great to see. All right, let's move on to the next one, which is teachers' views of instruction and coaching.
0: Mm. Well, I think that some of them felt quite positively about it to start off with. Some of them didn't. Perhaps if you go to the quote by Bella, which really concerned me because as good researchers, I didn't know how the scores were going in terms of my comparison with the other coaches. I didn't obviously know what the graph was going to look like. And um, That was my co-researcher, Dr. Wendy Moore. So we would just send it off to her. She did all the interviews and we didn't discuss it. So I had no idea really how things were going to play out when I worked with the teachers. And so I didn't realize that one of the teachers had been very upset with her when she'd been going through the pre-session. Like, how do you feel about coaching? And obviously, there were some real issues there in terms of her own self-esteem and her self-efficacy as a teacher. Mm. And so in the first session that I conducted with her, she was very weepy at the end of it. And I was quite confronted by that because... I don't ever seek that to do that in a person. But she was like, no, I was just more anxious about this whole process. So that was interesting because over the course of the sessions, her anxiety was diminished when when I worked with her. But, you know, I don't know to what extent that that would have sustained with perhaps other people working with her. I think that she felt very anxious about having anybody in the room. And that's the case for many, many teachers. So I understand that instructional coaching is hard. You've got a stranger in the room. You know, I have to build rapport with people really quickly so I can put them at ease so they feel comfortable. And then obviously after the first bit of feedback, that's quite a significant moment in our relationship because then they realise, oh, OK, she's here to help and and it's probably going to be okay. So I think that's, it's a big deal to have someone in your room, particularly a stranger from a university.
1: Mm. And if you can support someone who starts off at such a negative point to come to mm. a positive appraisal of coaching, I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And in line with that, I will share Bella's pre and post yeah. kind of comments. So before the program, Bella said, for me personally, I don't like that. If I'm to be honest, I don't like the formal observations from admin. I get a lot of anxiety from it and I don't feel it improves my teaching at all. I lose a lot of motivation from it. That was Bella beforehand. And afterwards she says, good actually, Mandy is so personable. She's very positive and lovely and gentle and you can't help but You know, it's nice. I was quite upset when I spoke to you initially, but this has been quite a positive experience. I'm still nervous, but not nearly as nervous as that had been for me before. I've not been upset at all. Mm. So yeah, real turnarounds. (laughs) It's a good
0: KPI. Someone wasn't upset.
1: Not upset at all.
0: You walk on sacred ground when you go into a teacher's classroom. I mean, I don't know about in your school, Ollie, but increasingly in schools these days, I'm seeing more open classrooms, more doors open. There's an acceptance that people will walk through classrooms, but that certainly wasn't the case. I think 10 years ago, I think there's been a significant change now in terms of having people come through and observe teaching as it's happening.
1: Good change to see. All right, what about the impact on student learning? We come to the holy grail of, of instructional coaching. This is of- the
0: holy grail, indeed the holy grail. So
1: so did did it change anything? Did the students get better?
0: I did. Look, I think at a, a micro level, teachers do better when they know better, okay? So I was at a golf course on Monday in a quaint country town and I was thinking, you know, if I was to step out on that golf course, I'd need a whole collection of clubs. And I don't know that some of the teachers that I initially work with have the full collection. So when you say to them, okay, here's a new instructional tool that I've given you, and this is how it works. If we go to the engagement norms, often teachers will say to me, wow, those whiteboards, I had no idea they didn't know. Mm. So the nature of the formative assessment with the whiteboards, the nature of the full sentence answers Very powerful, those pop sticks, very powerful. So, suddenly, by I guess training up these teachers to get good at explicit instruction, we also gave them the tools to be able to peer inside their children's heads and see how the kids were going. So, they knew that the children were improving. Very simple things. So, for example, in Nadine's room, she had said to me, You know, all these years I've been teaching writing, and they go into the writing corner and they throw paper at one another. And this, look at this, we have been doing this for such a short amount of time, and they are now writing words. You know, why have I not, you know, why did, I, why did I wait this long to do it? So I had lots of anecdotal stuff like that. Obviously, some time has passed. This school has gone from being a moderately performing school to being a high performing school so interestingly we had a change in leadership which can always go a bit pear-shaped many a school that I've worked with has had a change in leader and the new leaders rung me up and said oh really 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 love the results but I don't like the program and I have to say Ollie we didn't get the program for you mate you can read this is for the children this is what your kids need so luckily the principal moved on and a new principal moved in who I'd previously worked with and so she was like yes we're just going to keep this going so the school has continued to keep it going two of the administrators have stayed one has moved to another school and taken up an explicit instruction deputy role in that school as well so in terms of has it been helpful for people's careers and I think that's important yes it has because they've got good at doing something and they've been able to go into a situation where they've been able to extend that have the children improved yes they have are they still using the same program? So, you know, I like spelling mastery. That still happens in the school. Various things that I'd suggested to them would be very effective, continue to work within the school. So, yes, I would say that they're, if we judge it by NAPLAN data, their NAPLAN data is now very good and they would be considered in a particular suburb in Perth, one of the high-performing schools in that suburb in a fairly low socioeconomic area.
1: That's fantastic. Congratulations. And, Thank you. And, I mean, what's, what's the time period for that turnaround?
0: Well, I don't with this school, I guess it's it's been quite slow and steady. I'd say two to three years so most schools that I work with and in these days I'm turning my attention more to secondary schools because primary I find quite easy so as I said I'm the, the chair of a particular school in Perth you know when I first went to the school which is interesting the the teachers were like yeah who are you you know and we're going well we're we going to become an independent public school and I previously worked with the principal in another part of Western Australia and we'd turned that school around over a number of years and then she'd won this school in Perth and she said would you come and be school board chair and i said i'd love to anyway we met with the teachers and they were like well you know how long are you guys going to be here because lots of people have been through the school recently anyway we said well we're here to stay and some of the teachers actually said well you know we're really good teachers but it's these kids you know, and, and it's these kids that are the issue. You know, we're good teachers. Give us good, te- uh, good kids. And we go, well, you know, we, we're we not going to do that. And by the way, we've just come from a school where there was quite a high Indigenous population in a in a mining town in, in WA, and they're actually outperforming you guys at the moment. So how about it? Anyway, so we started the reform-based agenda And people either got on the bus or they got off the bus because it's no good being on the bus. If you don't want to be on the bus, it's not going to be pleasant. And so I started working with the staff and then increasingly more and more people took up explicit teaching. So it took three years to turn around the NAPLAN data in in quite a convincing way. And there are other examples of schools across Australia who've done that too.
1: It's, It's really quite a short amount of time, two to three years.
0: It is a very short amount of time. But you've got this thing and Hattie talks about it, it's collective teacher efficacy. It's when we all go, you know what, it is what it is. You know, I look at my Kimberley schools. Sometimes the kids don't come to school. Sometimes they don't have lunch. Sometimes they don't have shoes. Sometimes they don't read at home sometimes. And we can give all the reasons why potentially they're going to be unsuccessful at school. But when you say to your staff and you all say to each other, Hey, it is what it is, but between the hours of nine and three, we will do our absolute best. Something quite magical can happen, particularly with explicit instruction, because people start to get good at it and success breeds success. When you see what you you know, the children can do. I'll talk to principals and they'll say, Wow, those kids at that school you are involved with, they are amazing. Yeah, they are. You know, and it shouldn't be surprising. But because it's from a low socioeconomic area, sometimes people think, oh, wow, well, gee, those kids are doing so well. They should be. These kids are now uh, winning scholarships to go to schools with a gifted program. They're winning scholarships to go to private schools because they are so good. And what have we done? We've fixed up the surface level knowledge. That's what we've done. We've got them really good at reading, really good at writing, really good at doing maths. And now they can take on higher order problem solving really well.
1: Fantastic. And you said you're, you're moving more into working with secondary schools. Yeah. Does it look very different what you do in secondary schools?
0: What I do know it doesn't look any different at all, but secondary schools, <laughs> it's nice to go back to a secondary environment. That's where I've, I've spent most of my time in kindergarten over the last 10 years, Ollie. So being back in secondary is, is good. And, you know, I actually go back to my very own high school, the one I went to, and I sit in my science room and it's really creepy because nothing's changed. <laughs> you know, I feel these floods of emotions. I love going back there for that reason. Look, it's I would say that for secondary teachers, it's our harder sell because they've finessed what they're doing. Secondary teachers will go, I couldn't possibly teach explicitly. I've got so much to get through, so much curriculum to get through. And I go, well, you know, how much of that do you think they're actually retaining? And the answer is not very much. So what does it look like to me? I go in as a coach. I demonstrate when I can. I'm learning an awful lot about secondary maths right now. I might not be an expert in maths, and I know I'm not an expert in maths, but I can see when the lesson goes pear-shaped. I can see when there are too many. So the teacher will introduce some concepts to do with angles, and we'll do angle one, angle two, and then by the time we moved on to angle three, the kids are all, you can just tell it's too much, like Mm. stop, stop there. So I've got a sense of how it could go. I think at the moment I've got enough teachers who are really good at it to staff one high school in Western Australia. So they're split amongst seven or eight high schools. But gee, they're good. And they're not all beginning teachers. But if you've been teaching a long time, it is so hard to disavow yourself of trying to elicit from the students. So I'll watch a lesson and the teachers will go, okay, who can tell me what they know about magnets? Well, some know a lot, some know nothing, some don't even respond. So getting teachers away from that idea, and that's their teacher training. And so I guess the longer you've been teaching, if you've been doing it that way, the longer you expect to keep going that way. So it's hard sometimes to change teacher's practice, I think, in secondary.
1: And and when we're talking about kind of improving reading and writing in secondary mm. schools, do we need to create a designated like literacy class that's separate from English so that they can kind of tackle those challenges there? and then work more on the kind of ideas within English? Or is this something you generally support English teachers to incorporate into their general practice and, and, and just, okay. just more generally?
0: I think you need to look at your context. So initially, I'm always mindful that sometimes explicit instruction is lots of myths. And one of the biggest myths is just for those kids, whoever those kids are, whether they're second language learners, whether they're Aboriginal, whether they're from a low socioeconomic area, people are very quick to go, no, no, we don't need it here. We do inquiry based learning in this school. And I go, well, yeah, hopefully you do some explicit instruction too. but is this idea of just saying it's for the low achievers. And so the first couple of high schools I worked with had to do explicit instruction because their kids couldn't read and write very well. My husband is a secondary teacher. He has got kids in his year seven class who cannot read. So we have to do something about those students. So when I look at models that work really well, and there's a number of them in Perth that do it exceptionally well, they work out You know, each year they give some tests to the kids when they come into the school and they kind of work out what sort of hand life has dealt them. And then they go, okay, it is what it is. So we have a bunch of kids who can't read at all. We need something for them. So they will probably use a highly scripted program like corrective reading. Then they'll say there's a next bunch of kids who aren't so, they can read, but they're not so great at other things. So the primary issue is if they can't read, we need to teach them. So the next bunch can read, but they're not so great. For those students, they were getting a diet which was partly direct instruction, partly explicit instruction, and they were getting that across science, maths, has, English, all learning areas in some schools. But then we started metering it out, if you like, within more of a mainstream context. So I wouldn't want it to be labelled as something that you just did with kids who were behind, but you will teach more in less time if you teach explicitly. And if the kids are behind, what we're trying to do is to move them as quickly as closely up to their peers as possible. So I've got teachers in in schools who are doing a fabulous job in mainstream English, and what they're having to do in mainstream English is to say, look, here we are in Year 7 and we've got a bunch of kids who can't write sentences. We've got a bunch of kids who have got terrible vocab. We need to work on vocabulary. So they've started doing some things like daily review that include revision of concepts they've taught in class as well as core literacy skills. So if you want kids to write a persuasive essay, there are so many sub-skills involved there and most schools that I work with now are saying, right, year seven, year eight, that's a good opportunity to bed down those sub skills. Let's make sure they can punctuate, they can write good sentences, they can write a basic essay. And then when we get to nine and ten, we might be able to focus on something different.
1: Good stuff. Now, in the in the kind of feedback comments that I read from Nadine and Bella before, you know, they use lots of words like supportive, warm, friendly positive. Mm. And when I was reading I was wondering to what extent is the success of these schools to do with explicit instruction and instructional coaching and to what extent is it to do with Lorraine Hammond? <laughs> is is it just something that is this just something you're really good at, Lorraine?
0: If I think about the things that I love doing the most, I had a job for a while when I was just got out of teaching, and I like four years teaching under my belt, which is ridiculous. And I became an advisory teacher, and so that was one of my favorite jobs. And I would go and advise. And I think I've got good people skills. Is it possible to have other people do it? Absolutely. I work with a magnificent teacher who's much younger than me, and she is incredibly good at this as well. What we have in common, apart from I think being basically nice people or having a good bedside manner, which is critical, is. We have a high level of content knowledge. So when I sit down with a teacher, they will think, okay, no matter how I react to Lorraine, she actually is better at explicit teaching than I am. She will come and demonstrate with my kids. And I go into some Kimberley classrooms where you know, the behaviour is pretty racy. I don't know those kids at all. English is not always their first language, but I can get them to do what I need them to do because my instruction is so strong. And obviously I'll, I'll smile at them a lot. When I work with those teachers, they will go, okay, she can do this. So I think that earns you a little bit of respect too. I've worked with different people who've been coaches. And I think if I go back to sort of another Damascus moment that I had when I was first a teacher, there's this incredible researcher called Dr. Dr. Kerry Hempenstall, and he's one of my favorite people in the world. And he, he belongs to a DDoL network that I'm involved in, and it clogs up my inbox every day, and I listen to what he says, and he gathers up research. He's a real bow bird. He's fantastic. And I remember going to a professional development session that he ran, and he literally had 500 transparencies and an overhead projector. And it was early in the school year, it was in February, it was hot as hell, and it was revolting. This 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 venue was terrible, there was no air conditioning, but everything he said just resonated with me. And I would have, I don't know, I would have gone to the moon and back with him because I just thought it was incredible. So I think that if someone has something that you want, I think that you will be very tolerant if perhaps they don't necessarily have the best bedside manner. And I've sort of made a career out of bothering people. So if I'm really interested in something, I will bother people. I, I've bothered John Hattie. I've bothered all these people. Poor John Hattie, you know, it's like, I really want to meet you. And when he, when I eventually got to meet him, he brought all his friends with him. He thought I was a stalker, I'm sure. But, you know, I think that you go to the source, you find the person who's going to help you in your journey. So if I can be that person, I think that people will put up with a lot of other, put up with bad bedside manners if someone has it. So there are a number of coaches that I work with in WA who are very good, and many of them are beginning teachers. They're just extremely good at what they do. and That earns some respect, I think.
1: Hi, Lorraine. It's David here. Been Hi, waiting for Bated breath for an hour and a half to ask you this. <laughs> so as I read your article, I noticed a pretty clear parallel between the coach teacher relationship and the teacher-student relationship, Um, and I'm wondering if there are any insights or applications of the instructional coaching model that teachers could actually apply when giving feedback to their own students?
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that. I I kind of I reflect on that because sitting right next to me is a whole bunch of essays I've just had to mark for my uni students. So I would say it's exactly the same. I will always err on the side of positive. I always I give a lot of feedback. So one of my assignments for my students involved them either writing an essay or videoing in themselves. And if they went to the trouble of videoing themselves, I gave very very detailed feedback on their video. So I think, yes, it's about honoring whoever it is you're actually working with, whether it's a student or whether it's a teacher in a classroom. I choose my words carefully.
1: Next thing I was wondering about is, are there any limits to this explicit instruction, I mean, obviously there are some limits, but what are the limits? Is this something that you – do you expect teachers in secondary schools, for example, to do explicit instruction all the time Mm. or do you think it should be mixed in with other things?
0: It depends what you're teaching and who you're teaching, Ollie. If you're teaching a new concept to kids, okay – and, and let's just imagine, you know, I don't know whether you've been skydiving or sailing or something like that. You pay a lot of attention to the person giving you the instruction when your life's on the line. And I sometimes think in education, we should look at education that way. Because, you know, often we let kids go off and explore things when it would be more efficient just to tell them. So if I'm teaching something new to kids and they have low background knowledge, then I'm going to teach it explicitly because I don't want them figuring out the wrong way and I don't want them having misunderstandings. So for me, that is the most efficient way to do it. However, when I started in my school and that I'm the chair of the board for, we were evaluated three years down the track and it was so interesting because the evaluators came out and the first thing they said is, why didn't you start with inquiry? And we said, are you joking? The year fives couldn't read. We had behaviour like crazy in the school. We had kids lined up outside the office by nine and they remained there for most of the day. Inquiry was wrong. It was the wrong place to start. Inquiry is great, but you've got to bed down the surface level knowledge skills first. I would love kids to be doing open-ended problem-based learning, doing amazing maths problems, but if you can't do times tables, if you don't know how to do graphs, then you don't have the surface level knowledge required to do that. So I think it's always about a choice. I'm certainly not going to say, oh, that's an explicit instruction school, that's an inquiry-based school. You need to have both. And the schools that I work in do have both. But initially they privilege explicit instruction because if you understand that there's primary knowledge and there's secondary knowledge in the sense that biologically we come to school able usually to talk and possibly have a relationship with somebody, that's your primary knowledge. Secondary is everything else we teach on top of that and I think that is best taught initially explicitly mm. and that gets me into lots of trouble because people, you know, people will say to me, but Lorraine, where are the manipulatives? And I go, you know, sometimes you just need to be able to multiply two numbers and know how to put a big fat zero in. The kids understand about the big fat zero. We've done all that. It's about an instructional routine.
1: Mm. Got it. How do people get you on board, Lorraine? Are you for hire? How to, or are there? other coaches you work with?
0: Yeah, look, I'm very busy and I 50% of my time at the moment is spent somewhere north of Fitzroy Crossing, if you know where that is on the weather map. So I spend a lot of time actually travelling. I do sometimes do some work in schools. I'm always mindful that if I go into a school, you know, one shot PD doesn't work. And so I'm always mindful of going in and maybe doing a day and then never seeing them again because it's when you see them repeatedly that you can actually have the most impact. So I do sometimes do work in schools. I do have research projects on the go, which I, I thoroughly enjoy doing. And, of course, having the luxury of being involved in schools, so being on school boards, enables me to go into schools quite regularly and actually practice what I like to do with students.
1: Are there others like you, for example, yes. in Australia or yes. other countries? If If people want to find explicit instructional coaches that are going to work with their school, where do they go? <laughs>
0: Well, I think that they need to go to high-performing schools and I work with some incredible principals who have been doing this now for quite some time. So you might engage with a school principal who's a high-performing principal. How do you know that? Because their data often defies their postcode. If I'm, I wouldn't be inundated, but I'd be happy to put people in touch with some of these principals. I work with a bunch of teachers who are fabulous at this as well. And I have a steady stream of people who come to Western Australia to go into these schools to actually have a look and see for themselves. And that's a critical first step because you might as, a, and as an administrator think, yeah, I really want to do this. And you've got to come and see what it looks like to see whether it actually is what you want. Because if, it, if it's what you want, you need to have a good understanding of what the end game looks like because that's not where you'll start. You'll start and it'll be quite slow for a while. And some of the schools that I work in, Ollie, they're, they're well-oiled machines. They've been doing it for eight years. They're really, really good at doing it, very smooth and automatic. And when you watch it, it's like, wow, half the time people don't know what they're looking at. You know, you're looking at the PowerPoint slides, you're looking at what the kids are doing and the whiteboards. All these things just happen seamlessly.
1: Great. We might move into some, some closing questions now, Lorraine. Yeah, sure. So the first one is, what advice would you give to your first year, and we'll split this into two parts, your first year teach yourself and your first year research yourself?
0: My first year teacher self, gosh, I was full of enthusiasm. I'd, I'd remind myself that you can't love them to literacy, Ollie. As much as you try, you can't love them to literacy. And I would remind my beginning teacher self about my my blind spot, the fact that, and and you have it as well. You're good at maths, but I'm not that great at maths. Okay, so don't assume that I'm good at maths. I would do terrible things in my first year of teaching, where I would circle an error. And I would think that just by circling it and writing the words spelt correctly above it, that somehow that would become emblazoned on your brain and you'd remember forever. I didn't have a high level of knowledge in terms of teaching spelling and reading. I went back to uni as quickly as I could to learn all that knowledge. So I think that too often you start as a first year teacher and you assume that because you're really good at it, they'll be really good at it. And they're not. So that would be my advice to my first year out self. As a first as a beginning researcher, you've got to have a something. Gotta have a something. If you're gonna work with schools, I get the opportunity to work with lots of schools because I have a something to give them. So for me it was a beginning reading programme that I did for my I used for my PhD and my masters, so I knew it really, really well. So it was something I could deliver professional learning on, go into a school and actually I could help them to turn around literacy very quickly. So having a something I think is absolutely critical because then schools want to work with you. If you don't have a very clearly defined notion of what I'm good at, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and I stick with what I'm good at so I go down the rabbit hole in terms of what I do but 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 I do it well I don't try and do what other people do so if you came to me and said look Lorraine how about we do some research on cooperative learning in my school I'd say well I don't know enough about that to do it this is what I do so you stick to what you do well
1: great advice next question what's your information diet like what do you read who do you follow on Twitter who you think it's really worthwhile following are there any email lists you're into Uh, what's your information diet (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I belong to the the doll group, which I would thoroughly recommend to you. And I'm also involved in Spell Talk, which is a list server from the US. And the reason I love those is because over the last, I don't know how many years they've been going, but over all the time that I've been involved with them, it has enabled me to connect with some of the best researchers in the world. So I've got a new PhD student. So we cheekily put up a, an email asking a question and we got a response from one of the leaders in America on spelling. And I said, look at that, how great is that so, I wander quite a lot of time in the morning sorting through all those emails. I'll let you into a secret. I don't have enough time to read research necessarily to the level that I'd like to be able to. So good folk like Dr. Kerry Hempenstall will put up all the research that he's found recently on something, whether it's reading comprehension. And so I can just look and go, oh, there's a great quote. And I just drop that straight into my lecture slide. So my students will look and go, oh, my goodness, there's like 2017, 2018. How does she do it? Well, she she's sneaky. She she takes some back roads. I I'd like to if I was to recommend some reading, I'd I'd recommend something by Siegfried Engelmann, which is his book on disadvantaged students. He says teaching needy students in a backward system forty yeah. years of trying, which pretty well says it all, because direct instruction really It's nobody wants, it's like, I feel like a social pariah sometimes when I talk about direct instruction, people get very upset, they don't like it. But, you know, I have nothing but admiration for Siegfried Engelman because he has stuck to his guns and he has done it. And he's done it because he's got a moral imperative and that is to support students who are disadvantaged. I also like Hollingsworth and Ybarra's Explicit Direct Instruction because it's such an easy read. Other than that, my inspiration is Jeffrey Canada. I don't know whether you've listened to a TED talk by, by Jeffrey Canada. He says education is the only billion dollar industry that accepts abject failure. Yeah. So he's worth listening to. He's also appeared in Waiting for Superman, which is a fabulous documentary. If you haven't seen that, which looks at the uh, results of American children and in terms of whether you would go to a, a charter school or whether you would go to a public school. And if you want to go to a charter school and too many kids want to go to a charter school, you go into a lottery. And for me, that's quite a good analogy because I think that education sometimes is a lottery. I often meet people and they go, Oh, yeah, I'm moving into this suburb. And I go, Oh, which school are you going to send your kid to? And I go, No, not that one. No, no, no. Go to the one down the road. The one down the road is a high-performing school. But how would you know that as a parent, Ollie? You wouldn't. It's very, very hard. I think it's hard for parents to know where to send their children to school.
1: Oh, we'll link to all those things in the, in the show yeah. notes clearly. And what's next for Lorraine Hammond?
0: Well, I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing with secondary schools. I've got 70 teachers coming in on a Saturday, if you please for a free session that's run with me and also a charitable organisation that I do some work with called the Fogarty Foundation in WA. So everyone's coming in on Saturday to uni for a sharing session because one of the challenges for secondary teachers is how to generate those lessons. And so we've pulled together four teachers who are going to lead a session and I'm going to get some teachers in their learning areas to come together and to design some PowerPoints together. So, we're going to have that sharing session, and I'm quite looking forward to that. So, I sort of just feel like the the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff when it comes to this kind of teaching because too often I'll do the PD and people go, wow, why didn't I know about this when I was at uni? Why is this the first time I've heard about cognitive load? Like is this not the most important thing for people to know about as a teacher? And nobody knows about it. So I guess in my own little way I'm chipping away at my university but I would love for other universities to actually be teaching this stuff in their schools of education. And systematic reading instruction would be great as well.
1: Sounds like a very worthwhile project. Yeah. Final question, Lorraine. Any last calls to action or things you'd like to listeners to go away and do?
0: Oh, well, I don't know. I think that the next time they walk into their classroom, maybe they should catch themselves when they say to the kids, who can tell me what they know? Mm. And rather reframe it and say, okay, here, let me tell you something. Say it out loud. Tell your partner. Let me ask you a question about it. Let's see if they can actually change their their instruction. And if you did want a copy of that lovely TAPL poster that you have in your hot little hands, Ollie, you just need to go to the Dataworks website and you can download your very own copy.
1: Fantastic. We'll link to that one too. Well, Dr. Lorraine Hammond, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You know, we've gone through so much from explicit instruction, instructional coaching. You talked about how to support early leaders with that CCing in tip, which I thought was really good. You talked about how to approach coaching in terms of starting as a real basis. You've introduced us to TAPL and engagement norms. And we've really heard just a really inspiring story of how you've helped a lot of schools. So Dr. Lorraine Hammond, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck with the rest of your work.
0: Thank you, Ollie. I'll go teach now.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR Podcast with Dr. Lorraine Hammond. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. The show is really designed to ensure that teachers and school leaders around Australia and around the world have valuable professional learning, ready to listen to at any time. So if as you were listening today, you thought, oh, I know X person. I think they'd really enjoy this podcast. Then please send them a link. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the EAAA podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other EAAA episode, then please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.